Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for um, for the opportunity to worship you, for um, hearing from your word, for praying, um, for the worship we just experienced. Lord, we give you thanks. And so now, Lord, we ask, draw our minds and our hearts um, ever closer to you as we study not just your holy and written word, but also um, the history of your church and some of the wonderful works that you have worked through fallen human beings just like us. So we ask now, would you be present with us, O Holy Spirit? Um, Would you draw our hearts and minds to you, and would you cause us to be transformed even as we go out from this place? In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the first part of a series of three that I'm beginning, um, and um, one of the things that you'll see in this, oh, I don't want that. No music. They're going to do like some kind of cheesy music to go with this, but we want no music. Um, some kind. Of basically, it's a three-part series that I've titled "Photo Pilgrimage" because I've been fortunate enough to be spoiled enough. I say this to people all the time. I'm the spoiled one in my family. We're all spoiled in our different ways because my parents have loved the four of us adult children so well in my family of origin. I'm the only one of my three siblings, of the four of us, I'm the only one who's still single. And so my parents are very young, and they like to travel. And they, um, you know, now that they have fewer expenses with no children in college, no children at home, they, um, they travel a lot. And so thankfully they've brought me along on a lot of their travels. And the great thing about traveling with my parents is that we like to do all the same thing, but one of the strange things that we really like to do is that we love to go visit the most ancient Christian sites that we can possibly find anywhere that we are. I mean, we're just kind of nerds like that. So we, and we've called it for years, we've called it a pilgrimage, um, especially when things go wrong. I can't tell you how many times we've been in a cathedral city expecting to be able to see the beautiful cathedral, and it just so happened that it was the university's graduation that week. It was not publicized online because if you're in England, you just know, don't go to a cathedral that week because um, you won't be able to see anything. So we, we were in Canterbury, and it was the Canterbury University graduation and we were not allowed to see happened to us also at Durham so things like that in the middle of that kind of frustrating moment where our plans have gone awry uh, one of the great things that my father has kept on saying is that no we're not traveling we're not sightseeing we are on pilgrimage and whatever happens on the course of this pilgrimage is what is meant to happen and we will be okay no matter what happens we will be all right and just allowing us to be a little more flexible with um, some of the unplanned events of these different voyages that we've taken but isn't that true about the Christian life we are on pilgrims we're pilgrims on a journey and so um, so I titled it photo pilgrimage because we'll be looking during the next three weeks about um, different uh, different aspects of church history in the first two weeks and then in the third week uh, it will be more art history looking at some of the sculpture stone sculpture particularly of the Romanesque era and looking at how the Christian story um, was told in through stone over the course of the centuries in France and then also in the British Isles. So um, today Specifically, we'll be looking at conversion and baptism in early Europe. In particular, um, in very early in the first few centuries in the Mediterranean basin, but then also upwards into France and into the British Isles in the successive centuries. Um, so it is a little bit, I got 
teased by one of the other staff members, oh yeah, what I did on my summer vacation. But it is true, this is what I've done on my summer vacation for the last several years. So here's um, proof, me on my summer vacation there in 2010 at the cloister at Durham Cathedral. So, um, so the next question, what, basically the question that I'm asking by talking about conversion and baptism, I wanted to ask us, have us look at the question, how and why did people convert to Christianity throughout the Mediterranean and into Europe and the British Isles in the first several centuries of, of um, the common era, of um, following Jesus' death? So looking at the first century, the second century, all the way through to the sixth, seventh, and eighth centuries, before, um, before um, certainly around the time when Constantine, Constantine um, came to power as Roman emperor in the fourth century, and that was um, sort of surrounding a growth in Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. A lot of people think, well, um, by instituting by Constantine himself becoming a Christian, then suddenly Christianity was universalized and mandated from the top down. That's not actually true. He would not have converted if there hadn't been a groundswell up. And so some, um, some people, some church historians, and specifically social scientists, scientists, and one of my favorite is Rodney Stark. He's, you can tell he's a Christian, by the way he writes, which is so cool because there are so few sociologists who are actually Christians. It's one of the few sciences that continues to have very few Christians in it. And so um, he's very pro-Christian, but his, and so you would think that he would be rejected by the rest of his field. But what's so neat about his scientific studies and his statistics and his logic is that it's so good. He is so reasonable, so rational, so logical, and so careful in his study of the statistics of the populations of the Roman Empire in those first few centuries that what his basic conclusion is that um, Christianity rose throughout those few centuries because it was a rational choice for people to make. It was a good choice. People, um, for pagans converting to Christianity, it was a step up in life. And so we might say, well, why do people convert? I think back, why are you a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Were you born into a Christian family? Was there a moment when you said, yes, this is for me, I believe this as well? Did it sort of sneak up on you? And suddenly you realize, wait a second, I believe this. How did this happen? Well, um, that's a question that's helpful for us to ask when we reflect on our own lives, but it's also really helpful to look at when we look at today, when we look around at friends or family members who might not be Christians or um, work colleagues who are definitely not Christians, and we ask, well, how, how might they come to faith in Jesus Christ? And so looking at our history as a church can help us understand our own lives and our own journeys, but then also understand how might we be a vessel for proclaiming the gospel to others today. And there's, um, there's an answer to this that we as Christians like to say, which is true, but might not necessarily always help us know what next steps to take as we seek to proclaim the gospel to those around us. And that is, why do how and why do people convert to, Jesus, to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, we would say as Christians, we would say, well, because it's true, of course. Of course people convert because it's true. But that is like seeing... Um, forgive the analogy, but that's like saying, I don't know if any of you are football fans. I can't confess on the tape that I'm not. Um, but I hear a lot of football fans, if you ask, well, why did Auburn win or why did Alabama win? People will say, we win because we're the best team. 
And as Christians, we say, well, people convert because we're the best team. It's true. Of course people convert to Christianity, but that doesn't necessarily, and that's true, but understanding more of the specifics of why and how can be helpful for us in learning how to reach out to others. So, um, so because it's true, is yes, that's a good answer, but it's not a complete answer. It's not a comprehensive answer that's going to help us take steps towards it, towards um, spreading the gospel. So then another answer that we often give as Christians is that we'll say, well, because of the power of God, because of the Holy Spirit at work in the world, people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is also absolutely true on a big picture perspective. That is true, absolutely. Um, But one of the wonderful things about the Holy Spirit is that he works through the body of Christ, through the church, through us as individual members in the body of Christ to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who have never heard. So, okay, why and how? I don't know if you know this, but we are preparing in Birmingham for what they're now calling a Graham Festival, which is um, like the old Billy Graham Crusades, but this will be Franklin Graham, who will come to Birmingham in August of 2015, and there will be a wonderful evangelistic festival um, allowing people to come forward and hear the gospel who might never have heard it um, and to make a commitment to following Christ for the first time. And that is really wonderful, and that often, I was a part of one of those Um, crusades in Pittsburgh when I was a teenager and I got to be one of those counselors who stood up there and prayed with someone as they were praying to become a Christian. It was so powerful and it was so neat and the power of God was in it. It was true. They heard the message. They responded in faith. It was the power of the Holy Spirit but there are other factors, unseen factors, um, that are sometimes very material and very rational, very almost, we would say, fleshly, that are worth exploring and looking into to say, how did this person come to the point where they stood on the verge and said, yes, I believe this. I want to pray this prayer. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to be a Christian. So um, any questions about that before we look back? Now we're going to look back at this early history of the church and say, okay, how and why? We know that people convert because it's true. We know that people convert because um, the Holy Spirit is at work in the world and through the body of Christ. But how do people come to a place in their life where they say, yes, this is who I am. I believe in Jesus. Any questions about that before we move on to look at history? I'll take this picture of me off the... Well, throughout the Mediterranean and throughout then as it extended, as Christianity extended throughout the Roman Empire, even to the furthest reaches, and you have to understand, there was a lot of travel in that day and age, much more travel than we think of. Almost as more travel during that day and age than there would be for several centuries before, until, until the 19th century again. They traveled a lot by boat. I mean, just think about the first century. If you've ever read the book of Acts from cover to cover, and in my Bible study this fall, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts, studying the book of Acts all year, Paul gets around, he gets all around the Mediterranean by boat. And very, he, he, some have thought, I can't remember how many thousands of miles he traveled by boat, but he really did travel quite easily. And it makes you wonder, I never thought in that day and age they could get, get around that much. But you see within the Roman Empire with the roads that there is a lot more travel. Transportation is made possible. And that allowed the gospel to go out from Jerusalem. We know, too, that there was persecution in Jerusalem, and that caused those early Jewish Christians to have to leave and get out of the city of Jerusalem. And the the faith spread to Antioch, to Alexandria, to other parts around the Mediterranean basin. And it took longer for the gospel to get to the further outreaches of the Roman Empire up to um, 
um, up to France, up to Spain, up to England and Ireland. Um, but one of the things that was key and crucial besides the roads and besides the transportation to the spread of the gospel was also a gathering place, a meeting place. Because if you think about it, um, there were no churches. There were no places like this where people could come together to meet together to hear and read scripture and to hear the preaching of the word, to receive Holy Communion, um, to be in fellowship on the Lord's Day, as it were. A lot of the early Christians met in synagogues. Um, the Jewish Christians met in synagogues, and that's how they got the opportunity to preach about Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. And there were synagogues all throughout the Roman Empire. Wherever there was, um, there was an exiled Jewish community, there would be a synagogue. So very early on, that was a great place for them to begin preaching the gospel. House churches began to be formed. And as the faith moved north, one of the things that we see in the British Isles that I just love is... Um, that there are these, um, oh, whoops, I didn't do that right. I'll go back to that, sorry. I'll go back to that. Okay, here we go. Um, in throughout the British Isles, throughout England and Ireland and Scotland, there are what we call these high crosses. Do you've ever, have you ever seen these beautiful Celtic crosses? And I'll talk more about the significance of the Celtic cross next week when we look at Celtic Christianity specifically and what signifies, what are the different things that mark out Celtic Christianity. But what was so neat about this, we see this and we think, oh, isn't it beautiful? It's a monument. It's a gravestone. No. These were not gravestones. The high crosses that littered the British Isles, they were actually meeting places, outdoor meeting places, for people to gather and hear an itinerant preacher, a Christian who was traveling very often, someone from a monastic community or a missionary bishop, who would be preaching the gospel. Who, um, and so what was so neat about that was that the proclamation of the gospel was completely out of doors, completely taken to the crossroads of community life, to the place where people met anyway. So this is a great, beautiful cross, one of, one of the earliest specimens. This is from like the 5th century A.D., and it's found in just outside Dublin in a place called Monaster Boyce, where there was a monastic community in that time. And, um, but you see that on this cross there would be markings. Um, there are other crosses I've seen. That this one is in um, Clandui in uh, Wales, which I saw this year on my trip to Wales. Um, the Celtic crosses also would very often have this knotwork. Um, which was something so significant to the Celts themselves, and so to have the Christians incorporate it um, within their own artwork was significant, um, a way of creating a bridge between um, the gospel and Celtic culture. There's another one at Karoo, also in Wales, and this one is so high, and you can see the arm of someone standing here. See how high it is. So you could see it all around the landscape. If you imagine that there were no story, you know, no houses above one story, you would be able to see that cross for miles around. You would know that that was where you could go to hear about Jesus Christ. Um, there's um, there's another one at Nevern. My slideshow is cutting off the top of it. Um, but they were beautiful reminders, markers. Um, they were also a visual gospel. And I'll look at some of the actual stories that are depicted on them um, in two weeks' time when we look at story in stone. 
But so as people would gather, they would hear the gospel, they would hear this truth put forward, but they also would see the lives of the Christians who were traveling around, those Christians who were itinerant and preaching the gospel, then also those who converted in individual towns. And there was something about the lives of these Christians that made Christianity a rational choice for pagans in that time. And this is something so hard for us to understand because we have to imagine suddenly that we're in a world where no one is a Christian, which is so hard for us to imagine, especially here in Birmingham where um, so many people are Christians, where the majority of the population professes faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in that day and age, in that place, um, so few people were Christians. And why would, um, why would Christianity be a rational choice? This is what, um, again, that author, Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, he talks so articulately about why Christianity is a wise choice, why there were not just spiritual, eternal benefits um, to living the Christian life, but why there were so many earthly, even fleshly, material benefits to being a Christian in that day and age. Um, one of the things that he talks about is the status of women. Looking out the Roman Empire, looking throughout the Roman Empire, one of the things we forget about is that um, the lives of children were not regarded, the lives of children and infants um, was not valued. Um, infants would be left out exposed to the elements Infanticide was a common practice, a legal practice, if the child was female or a deformed male. Um, there was an excavation done in one of the, um, of one of the sewers of a city in the Middle East that was a part of the Roman Empire. Pardon me for this gruesome aspect. In this sewer, the archaeologists found what amounted to, um, it had been clogged in about the 4th century, and they found what amounted to um, up to the bones, the bones of up to 100 infants, day-old infants likely. The children were exposed, unwanted, unraised. And most of those children, the, the vast majority of those were female children. Um, then also abortion was practiced in the Roman Empire. A lot of people don't know this. The Romans had a really good understanding of biology and anatomy, even though they didn't understand um, about bacteria and germs and about cleanliness. So again, pardon my gruesome aspect of this. Um, they did it because they didn't want the children. Any husband could um, tell his wife that she had to have an abortion, and very often the women died as well as the infant. So what you found was that um, there were fewer women in the Roman Empire than there were men. The Roman Empire was already, already steadily declining in population by the time Christianity was on the scene. There were injunctions from the emperors about... Um, Fertility. Um, there were incentives for marrying and having children because uh, men in that day and age didn't really see the need. Marriage was not held in high regard. Um, so for women, with all of this, with the treatment of women within the Roman Empire, with the way women were given in marriage um, before they reached the age of 13, um, women found that the life within Christianity, the Christian life, the life within the Christian subculture and community was so much better than the life in the Roman era, in the Ro Greco-Roman culture, in the pagan culture around them. And so you would find all of these women converting to Christianity, and not just women of low status, but women of high socioeconomic status. And um, one of the things that you hear throughout some of, the, some of our scriptures and then some of the early church writings is that you hear church leaders urging women um, to marry within the faith. And... Um, Rodney Stark says, if there weren't, um, 
if there weren't women marrying outside of the faith, why would they have needed to tell the women to marry inside the faith? And it's a good argument to realize that a lot of these Christian women could not find Christian husbands. Um, so they had the goal of finding Christian husbands first and foremost. As Paul says, you know, if you must marry, marry someone of the, of the faith so as to not be unequally yoked. But then you also hear Paul saying about women who convert that um, believing women um, will find that their husbands are wooed to the faith by the lives of these Christian women. Um, you hear Paul talking about that, that the unbelieving husband um, very often comes to faith through the, through the believing wife. And that's what Rodney Stark talks about, is that very often there were these secondary conversions to Christianity. First, the women would convert, and then their husbands would convert. And then, um, because the life was so much better towards women, there were more women in the population. And then those women couldn't all find Christian husbands. And so um, the church would sometimes turn a blind eye while they married outside of the faith, knowing that the children would be raised in the Christian faith. So you see Christianity growing, not just by miracles, not just by the truth of the doctrine, but by some very interesting socioeconomic factors, some social factors. Um, one of the other aspects of conversion that you see throughout is the, um, the unwavering faith of the witnesses of the Christian faith. Um, and by witness, the word for witness in the New Testament is um, martyr. The Greek word for witness, when you see it throughout, um, throughout the New Testament, when, um, when you hear Jesus saying in Acts, right, as he is ascending into heaven, Acts 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses even to the end of the earth. That means bearing testimony through word and deed to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Um, and then you also hear Jesus being talked about himself in Revelation 1, 5. John, the um, evangelist who sees the vision from the island of Patmos, um, is, the vision is received from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Jesus himself, who bears witness to who the Father is in all of his love and mercy for a broken humanity by himself being broken even to the point of death. Jesus bear wit bears witness by his life um, and by his death of who God the Father is. And so then we too are called to be his witnesses in word and deed to who he is, proclaiming his goodness, proclaiming his love for us. And what you saw in those early centuries is that um, leaders within the Christian church were very often sporadically in those first few centuries persecuted by Roman authorities, whether it was by the emperor in Rome or by local authorities, um, based on their unwillingness to uh, worship the emperor or worship other local deities. Um, Christians were seen in that day and age as being atheists because in that pluralistic religious society, there were so many gods, and if you worshipped only one god exclusively, then you were not covering all your bases. And as um, in that kind of religious mindset, you had to cover all your bases. Well, I just have to go to um, Mithra, worship there, worship Isis, worship the emperor. Then I'm going to make sure that all goes well for me. And if something doesn't go well for me, then it's because I failed to cover all my bases, worship all the different gods that I ought to have worshipped. Or someone else in my community has failed to do that, and then they must be punished for that. And so Christians, because they would not worship the other deities in the pantheon of Roman, Greco-Roman gods, they wouldn't worship anyone but um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so they were persecuted. There was this one particular persecution that occurred at the end of the cent second century in the town of 
I can't even say the Roman name, Lugdunum, Lyon in France. And in this town of Fran in France, in Lyon, Lyon is a big industrial city now. Um, and I was there last summer in 2012. And um, it was hot. It was July. And we didn't realize that everyone goes on vacation in July. I, I knew it, but we didn't realize that there were no restaurants open. There was nothing to do. We just sat in our hot, air-conditioned apartment. So one of the highlights of that particular city visit was to go um, to this arena. And this is called the Arena of the Three Gauls, which Gaul is the Roman name for, um, for France. And they, the Gaulois were the tribes. So there are three tribes in that area. This particular um, arena was the place itself where a whole group of Christians were martyred at the end of the second century. Blandina and her companions, they were, um, they were arrested. They were housed in, these, um, in this area over here where the cells where the prisoners were kept prior to the spectacle. The, um, their neighbors and the other people in the town sat all on this green area all the way around in the bleachers, all the way around this arena down here. And there they were, they were publicly tortured in the expectation that they would publicly then give up their faith and worship the gods, sacrifice to the gods. And the testimony of these Christians is totally incredible. The one, one Christian in particular, Blandina, was the slave in a household that was a Christian household. And she bore witness. They talk about her bearing witness by continuing to um, confess the faith. Um, and and the, there is uh, an account of what happened that we think was written by Irenaeus of Lyon. He was on pilgrimage to Rome at the time of the persecution. And when he returned, the current bishop had died in the persecution, and he was made bishop of Lyon. Irenaeus is famous for his defense of the Trinity. He's an incredible theologian, well worth reading, um, one of those early theologians, second century. And he probably wrote this letter that the historian Eusebius has passed on down to us that we still have today from him. Um, and he talks about these martyrs, these witnesses, gi giving, um, giving glory to God, um, showing the love that God has for them, showing the love that Christ has for his people, even by being willing to suffer. Um, so they t he talks about Blandina, who was herself one of the combatants among the witnesses, that she, she was afraid, she prayed to her fellow Christians, that, that, they would, uh, that God would allow her to make a bold confession. She was worried on account of the weakness of her body. But in fact, Blandina was filled with such power that those who tortured her one after the other in every way from morning till evening were wearied and tired, confessing that they had been baffled, for they had no other torture they could apply to her. Her stamina, her faith, God gave her the faith to endure when those who were trying to get her to renounce her faith got tired, she still um, had strength, and that strength was so clear to so many that it came from a higher power. At the, um, she recovered her strength. The blessed woman, like a noble athlete, and because this was the athletic arena as well, they likened um, the boldness of these martyrs and these witnesses to athletes, just like Christ himself was an athlete in going to the cross, that physical um, endurance. The blessed woman, like a noble athlete, recovered her strength in the midst 
and she confessed her declaration, I am a Christian, and there is no evil done amongst us. She, brought, um, she was given refreshment and rest and insensibility to all, these, all the sufferings inflicted upon her. Sorry, to, it makes me wince to say it, and I know it makes you wince to hear it, but the beauty of the confession of these early witnesses caused so many um, specta- of the spectators who saw this public witness to the Christian faith and to Jesus Christ, um, it caused them to say, wow, they really believe that. I don't know. I don't think I'd be willing to stand up for anything that I believe in the way that they stand up for what they believe in. And um, many were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Many were, um, were um, in awe of their disregard for their own death and their unwavering confidence in eternity. The, um, the Greek physician to the Roman emperors, called, his name was Galen, he wrote during this time period, there, the Christian, content of death and of its sequel, is patent to us every day. We see it all around, how willing they are to die for their faith. So there is this um, strength of faith among these early Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit that caused others to say, wow, I, I want to believe in something the way those people believe in it and live it out. Um, any questions about that? I'm sorry to have read all of that. I know it's a little hard. Any thoughts about that? I see some nods. Is this the first time you've heard about some of the faith of those early witnesses? Really? <laughs> it's incredible. There were not, um, there, one of the most astonishing things too is to learn that um, there's, a, there's a website called The Voice of the Martyrs and it's based on a book. There's also a book called The Voice of the Martyrs, or called uh, I'm not going to mess it up, so I won't say it um, because I don't want you to look for Don't Google the wrong thing, but do Google the voice of the martyrs. And that's talking about different martyrs around the world. And I know Andrew, a few weeks ago, I don't know if you heard in his sermon, he mentioned Miriam Ibrahim, who's been in the news. Her experience is not unusual today in many parts of the world. And so when we pray during the prayers of the people for the persecuted church, it is real, the kind of persecution and suffering that Christians endured in the first few centuries of Christianity is real today and actually there are many more just because there are so many more Christians today. Um, Our population is so much higher than it was in that day and age. Um, There are countless martyrs of the Christian faith today in parts of the world um, where we don't necessarily have access. In the Middle East, in some of the Muslim parts in Africa, in Asia, um, and we just don't hear about it, but it's marvelous hearing about their faith is, I find it simultaneously encouraging and discouraging because I think, well, I don't have a, Lord, I don't think I have a faith like that. And yet, what a wonderful vision to say, you, God, made their faith like that. And you, can, you will strengthen my faith as well. I can trust that you will strengthen my faith as well. So this is some of the why and the how. You know, they had gathering places. They, um, people who were pagans made a rational choice, um, which is totally contrary to Marx's. Remember that Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Well, Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, is so good about showing that no, in fact, Christianity was a rational choice, a rational choice to believe something that seemed to give more assurance of eternity than any of these market religions could give, even as they vied for money from their followers. Christianity didn't require any money. said, these things are given to you 
come worship, come be a part of this community, and there are um, there is hope for eternal life. And then there were material benefits also seen through the sharing of um, of resources, especially within the early church, that those who were impoverished within the body of Christ were taken care of. And we do this still to today, even in ways that you might not know about, um, but that in ways that you can be a part of. There are always ways to be a part of um, helping our brothers and sisters in Christ and then also helping and serving those outside of the church. Um, and again, Rodney Stark talks about this love for one another, that Christians displayed this love for each other within their own community. They also, in this early day and age, they reached out to their neighbors in these big cities. He talks about the cities of those uh, of the Roman Empire and how chaotic they were, how much um, displacement there was in the peoples of the empire, how they moved around so much, um, but that when they ended up in a city where they, they had no more connections to their tribe or to their homeland, um, then they found that they were reaching out, they were searching for new attachments and a new network of community, and that the Christians were there to receive them, to receive the orphan and the widow, to um, make connections outside of their own walls, so to speak, their non-literal um, walls. And so um, this was most evident. Rodney Stark talks about these. there was probably a smallpox epidemic in the year um, 165 throughout the Roman Empire. It lasted for 15 years, and then there was another one in the year 251. And what happened, remember this is before understanding about germs, before understanding about how you would catch this plague and what happened was that pagans um, would flee the city flee these urban areas because they didn't want to catch um, they didn't want to catch the plague and um, and they would leave behind their nearest and dearest they would leave their dying children their dying spouse their dying parents their dying family members just to get out and try to save themselves and what, from the statistics so he does this great I'm sparing you the statistics actually <laughs> if you can believe it you might be bored but I'm sparing you the statistics he shows by the statistics that Christians actually stayed and they nursed not only each other within the body of Christ but they took care of their neighbors who had been abandoned and even in that context, the simple act of giving them water and some food um, caused many more to live. And so then if you had been a dying pagan, abandoned by your family, left to die in the city, in the cesspool of the city, and these Christians came along and nursed you back to health, then wouldn't you feel a stronger emotional connection to those Christians who saved you than to the family members who fled? And so through the course of these um, epidemics and through the suffering in the world at that time, um, Christians had a greater network of charity than was uh, than existed among the pagans. And you even see pagan writers saying to each other, "We shouldn't be ashamed of ourselves. <laughs> we need to build up a network of charity so that we don't keep losing people to these Christians. Um, they shame us by their care for each other." Um, so you see that all throughout. Um, so that, of course, drew people in. Um, into the faith. Um, there are also, um, again, this question of was it the religion, is, Christi is religion the opiate of the masses? One of the things about Christianity in these early days and, age, days and centuries is that you see that um, many upperclassmen, 
were brought to Christianity, were compelled to convert. And um, it, that exercised a lot of influence over people as well. If the leader of your community suddenly became a Christian, you might ask yourself, I wonder why, I wonder what it is about this faith that draws them in. And there were people throughout um, uh, who did come to faith. This is Hilda, who was an abbess in Whitby in Northumbria, which is the northern, northeastern part of England. And she was of the ruling classes, like many of the monastic leaders. Um, she was um, seen as a noblewoman, just like the kings. Um, she was the daughter of a king. And so um, people would look up to people like that and wonder, well, I wonder what it is about this faith that draws people like her in. There was also Bertha of Kent, and I lost that picture, so I'm sorry, I can't show you Bertha of Kent. But she was very early on in the 500s down in at the very tip of England, and she, her husband, this is a great example of a Christian wife and an unbelieving husband. Her husband was a pagan king in Kent, and she called to the Pope and asked him to send a missionary to convert the people of the area and her husband, but um, and in and he did eventually become a Christian. It was amazing to see how the faith of this one woman encouraged and brought other Christians to the area. So that was Bertha. Um, oh, this is still Whitby. The remains of the Abbey in Whitby. That's obviously a medieval church. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. There are things like this littered all throughout the British Isles. Um, unfortunately, following Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. Um, they no longer had a religious purpose. This is another, um, we're, it, we were walking out this causeway. Um, you can't see the, the island of Lindisfarne is over here in the distance, and the waters, would, um, the waters flooded this causeway pretty frequently, so pilgrims in the Middle Ages had to be very careful as they were walking out on pilgrimage to Lindisfarne. But Lindisfarne was on the very eastern part of northern England, just by the Scottish border. And Lindisfarne, um, there was a king of Northumbria named Oswald who converted to Christianity. And he, like Bertha, asked for help. He said, I want my people to become Christian. So he called up, up he um, sent a messenger up to Iona, which was a Celtic community at the northern part of um, Scotland. And he said, bring us uh, um, someone to come and preach to us the good news. And so Aidan came down to Lindisfarne, and through the um, community there, the monastery there at Lindisfarne, the gospel went forth to people in northern England. All of this to say, these um, material aspects that drew people in, they were all aspects of the faith lived out, weren't they? Those Christians lived out their faith in radical ways, um, and people came to faith in Jesus Christ through seeing, not, not just through hearing the words of the gospel, but for seeing the gospel lived out in the lives of these Christians. And one of the things that that tells us is that they received much. They received and really heard the gospel, and they proclaimed it out to other people as well. Now, I realize I just saw the time. I'm sorry. And I'm going to do a real quick on, um, con on baptism. So how then, once people came to faith in Jesus Christ, what then did we, they do? Well, there was, in the very early centuries of Christianity, can you believe it? They had a two-year catechesis where they had to learn the Christian faith, where they had to turn from paganism and learn the Christian faith. I know someone who wanted to reinstitute, based on the lack of um, Christianity in North America today, wanted to reinstitute a two-year catechesis, and I was like, I don't know if that'll fly. I don't know if people will go for that. I think that, you know, the weeks of confirmation, you know, that we have confirmation class, that's like, 
that might be all we can get out of people. But, um, but so there was this long time of preparation, and then people were baptized. I don't know if you can see it, but here, this is still Lyon, outside um, one of the big churches in Lyon. There was this, um, this is eight sides. Can you count them? One, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's this eight-sided hole in the ground that doesn't look like much, but it's the archaeological remains of the first baptistry that was there in Lyon um, going back. This one was going back to the 5th century. Um, and during that era, you would see it was a hole in the ground, like good Baptists today, they, they were dunked. And um, they were dunked down. Here's another one in excellent Provence. See the eight sides all the way around. They went down. They walked down, down, down. Um, being buried in Christ. Don't we hear that in our baptismal liturgy? We hear that also in St. Um, Peter's letter, his first letter, talking about being buried with Christ, rising with him. And there was that, um, that burial in that sense of going down the depths, um, going down into the grave, being almost underground while you were baptized, submerged under the water, and then rising up to new life in Jesus Christ. This baptistry was from the 5th century. You can see the marble columns were probably from the 2nd century. Um, you see those two pipes, the water that flowed in and out of these, these little um, pools was living water. There was water flowing in and water flowing out. So the technology of the Romans had taken root, was still known um, as that day and age. And it fulfills um, the Jewish expectation when they had their ritual washings. Jews would be washed in living water, water that was flowing like a shower instead of stagnant like a bath. And so um, there you have this idea of cleansing and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit um, and echoing even Jesus' words, his prophetic utterance in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, that out of the belly of the believer in him, waters of living water will flow, streams of living water will flow. Um, so finally, one last note on this, that there was this separation. Remember that th two-year catechesis. Well, when you became a Christian, you couldn't, before you became a Christian, you could not enter the church itself and worship with the Christians. You were kept outside the church building. We can't imagine because church buildings are public places. But in that day and age, only the baptized could enter the church. And so what you found was that this actually was not a church. This is a 5th century baptistry in Poitiers in France. And you see that as they entered, came out of the water, they would see all of these beautiful paintings um, that were reminiscent of heaven, pointing towards the eternal life that they had through faith in Jesus Christ. And then they would go from there in to receive Holy Communion for the first time. They would enter into the church, um, enter into the physical edifice of the church, entering into the body of Christ. So we see that some of these um, elements are still present today. In our baptismal liturgy, we have three renunciations and three proclamations. We renounce evil three times, and we profess our faith in Jesus Christ three times. Or the baptismal candidates do, or their sponsors do. We also, as Andrew has said recently in his Pentecost sermon, that we have an eight-sided font, just like these eight-sided baptismal fonts in the ground. And if you were to go into our baptistry, which is in the back of the church, because it's outside the church, you still have to enter the church after you are in the baptistry. There we have an eight-sided font. And that eighth day, um, it symbolizes, as Andrew has said, the eight 
members of Noah's family who passed through the waters of the flood unharmed, just like we who believe in Jesus Christ will one day pass through the waters of death unharmed and come out the other side to new life. But then also, I've heard it said as well, that it is for the eighth day, the day of new creation, resurrection day, that um, first day of the new week when Jesus rose from the dead. So, um, so for those of us who believe in Jesus, we have new life in him. And as we receive, it's through that receiving of that new life, receiving forgiveness of sins, receiving all that God has for us in Jesus Christ, that we are then empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit to um, live lives of great faith the way those early Christians did. Um, so we look to them not saying, oh, I could never do that. But, wow, God, you did that. Would you do something like that again in and through me? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to have faith in you. Um, And we ask, Lord, would you touch those um, around us that we might not even know of who don't believe in you? Would you cause us to be light and salt to them? Would you um, bring them through our our natural resources, through um, the rational choices that they make, through um, the supernatural resources that are all yours in abundance, through the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you bring um, those who don't know you to a saving faith in you? And we thank you, Lord. Thank you for the new life that we have have in you through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.